Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Most of the great thinkers who've written about the state have come to the conclusion that its overriding purpose is to provide for the security of its citizens. In order to prevent what Thomas Hobbes calls the war of every man against every man, there must be a single power which alone can exercise legitimate violence, a power to overawe them all, as Hobbes says. And this is pretty much how we still define the state. Somebody else can run the buses or pick up the trash, but the power to punish and deploy armed force must remain with the only institution that represents and embodies us all, the state. That's the theory. In practice, things are changing fast. During the last 20 to 30 years, the proportion of police and military power in private hands has steadily grown. In the United States today, more than 10,000 private security companies employ an estimated 2 million guards, four times the number of state and local police officers. In South Africa and Brazil, private security outweighs the public police by a ratio of 3 to 1. Private military companies have also grown dramatically and now constitute an estimated $100 billion a year business. In Colombia, their role is so important that a spokesperson for Human Rights Watch has quipped that the civil war there has been outsourced. This worldwide expansion of private power is our subject tonight. The program is part two of a special 10-hour series called In Search of Security. It's presented by David Cayley. In the period after the Second World War, a condition called development was projected as a universal destiny. The path to this goal might be communist or capitalist, but all countries could be categorized as either developed or developing. At the end of the road lay a shining city, a comprehensive state capable of protecting and providing for all its citizens. But for most of the last 30 years, this shimmering Oz has been under siege. Debt, deregulation, downsizing, and sheer disillusionment have all done their worst. Poor countries have seen once-expanding governments virtually dismantled by the International Monetary Fund, and even powerful and prosperous states have shrunk. This weakening of the state has had profound consequences for security. No state can now afford to supply all the policing its citizens demand, and some lack the capacity to provide any at all. In many countries, such police forces as there are may be predatory and corrupt. The result has been a massive expansion in private security arrangements. Our survey of these new arrangements begins in a country where the failure of the state was particularly catastrophic, Russia. Vadim Volkov is a sociologist and political economist who teaches at both the European University and the Higher School of Economics in his native St. Petersburg. Leningrad when he was born. He has just published a book called Violent Entrepreneurs, The Use of Force in the Making of Russian Capitalism. 
In this book, he deals with the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the old order had disappeared and the new had not yet taken shape. In these circumstances, Volkov says, business could only be conducted under what he calls private protection. And there was a vast pool of unemployed and dishonored men willing to provide such protection. One such source was the veterans of the Soviet Union's disastrous war in Afghanistan. Nobody cared about these people. They were left to themselves. And also this war was deemed a bit shameful, useless. And these people did make a sacrifice, and this was their life, and this was their risk, and this was their comrade brotherhood. So they had to somehow survive. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them basically went into private protection very quickly. Also sportsmen, sport was a very powerful institution in the Soviet Union, and it was all subsidized by the state. There was no professional sport. So when the state's subsidies dwindled and the prestige of sports went down, and what, what do you do? You adapt, you use your skill for a different purpose. And the state apparatus was huge, over one million of policemen. Uh, I don't know how many you know, state security, the KGB, the exact figures are, are unknown. So there was a kind of overproduction of people whose profession was connected or experience was connected with violence on the one hand. On the other hand, emerging markets generated inherent demand for, you know, for protection, information, and so on. Protection, as Vadim Volkov uses the term, means mainly the enforcement of contracts, with violence if necessary. Business agreements could only be concluded with the participation on both sides of what he calls enforcement partners, who promised nasty consequences should the agreement not be executed. It was the only way business could be carried on in the absence of the legal guarantees which the state was in no position to provide. All the major functions of the state, like dispute settlement or justice and protection, physical security and, and economic security, uh, adjudication, they were privatized by all sorts of agencies that, you know, protected economic transactions, negotiated among themselves, and this was kind of very interesting type of justice, you know, the state of nature, more or less, in practice. Although, you know, the facade of the state was there, the symbols, the officials, but if we follow this you know, basic definition of the state as monopoly of legitimate violence, justice, and taxation, there was none. And the state itself was a kind of private protection company with the office in the Kremlin. It was superior to any other private protection organization when it wanted to pursue its own interest, but it didn't exercise, you know, general monopoly or priority in, in, in these key fields for the state. So, and it didn't fight against organized crime. In the midst of this free-for-all, the Russian government made what Vadim Volkov considers an extremely crafty move. It created a legal private security industry and a legislative framework to govern it. This provided a legitimate alternative to the criminal syndicates. So when the former state security agency, the KGB, was broken up and reduced in size, as it was at this time, many of those who were let go 
were able to take the option of forming lawful private companies. I think it was a very wise decision by the state to actually introduce the legal framework because it makes this murky field of private protection more legible to the state, more accountable, subject to regulation, of course, over time. So the, war, the, the law was adopted in March 1992 and started working, and the growth was tremendous. So in '93 there was already 4,500 formally registered private protection agencies, 6,500 in and 50% growth each year, and almost 13,000 now. These 13,000 companies today employ about a quarter of a million armed security guards. These private guards are still greatly outnumbered by the one million state police. But the numbers are deceptive, because in Russia, the state also provides private security. Simultaneously with uh, this law in the same year, 1992, they passed a kind of decree whereby they created the so-called extra-departmental protection service, which is the same police in the same uniform, but acting on commercial basis, as it were, selling security on commercial basis. So we cannot blame them because the state coffers were empty and the salaries of policemen were extremely low. So it was their kind of adaptation measure to raise money from kind of extra budgetary funds, as, it, as they were called, creating this uh, commercial service which was more efficient and which, of course, serviced those who could pay. And even now, the incomes of policemen, their private incomes from off-duty policing and off-duty security are higher than their uh, state duty income. So they earn more working on the market than in the state service. The rise of private security companies tended to push criminal protection agencies more to the margins of the economy. Emerging businesses no longer had to rely on freelance enforcers as they had in the early 90s. And by the later 90s, the participation of overtly criminal gangs in the Russian economy was much reduced. But one unfortunate result of this reduction in organized crime, Vadim Volkov says, was an increase in disorganized crime. When organized crime went down in the end of the 90s and now, partly because it became legitimate and invested into legitimate business and its patterns of activity changed, partly because it didn't with, couldn't withstand the competition at the security markets. But then uh, disorganized crime is much worse for the population. Those people who in the past were members of well-disciplined criminal groups doing the you know, private protection business, uh, they were now jobless. And you know, the, the new young people who, you know, who are tough and who went into the cities uh, looking for incomes they couldn't find them, and so they, they spontaneously create gangs and they do you know, violent robberies, and, and the level of public safety is going down. More dangerous streets are now creating the same situation in St. Petersburg 
as prevails in many other cities around the world. Those who can afford it buy private security and create safe areas. The rest put up with the danger and disorder. But despite this increasingly unequal access to safety, Vadim Volkov says that in his view, private security is still a good thing. It's a good sign. Private security is a good sign. Given that it's well regulated, that private security works in a well-enforced, rational, uh, legal framework. And I like the idea that even though the manifest goal of private security is to, you know, to market security as a commodity, you know, to provide it on a private basis, but there is a kind of spin-off, an unintended consequence, which is the you know, increase of public security as well. I think there is an inherent tendency in security to become a public good because it refers to the quality of the environment. And public good is what? Public good is not something that is provided by public agencies, but public good is something that is non-exclusive. You cannot exclude other people from consuming it. This is the definition of the public good. It's indivisible. You cannot give this person that much of a public good and this person that much of a public It's like the air that we breathe. It's very hard to exclude other people from consuming it. Of course, you can provide security on a private basis in the form of security camera, in the form of the fence, in the form of the concrete policeman guarding the concrete entrance to a concrete place. But still, there's, you know, certain, it generates spin-offs for public security, because security is an environment. an environment, according to Vadim Volkov, something indivisible. And therefore, increased security for some must mean, at least in some small measure, increased security for all. It's a thought-provoking axiom, but it seems to me that it can only apply where the space being secured is in some sense common. How otherwise do I benefit from my neighbor's fortifications if all they do is shift the thief's attentions to me. Unhappily, it appears that such completely private space, unconnected to collective goods, is becoming more and more common in the world's great cities. Criminologist Clifford Shearing speaks of the fortified fragments that now cut up urban space and allow some to live in virtually hermetic security bubbles. It was in just such a bubble that Renata Ferraz grew up, She's a young, Brazilian-born colleague who now works in the news department here at CBC Radio. Before emigrating to Canada with her family in 1997, she lived in a gated community in the city of São José dos Campos in São Paulo State. I only realized how restricted my life was when I came here because I never knew any different. I didn't know what it was to be free, so you, don't, you can't miss something you don't have or you've never had. But um, when I was living in a gated community, I would ride my bike 
and I'd have an armed escort patrolling the streets, which is quite ridiculous, you know, when you're 14 riding your bike and there's a guy with a gun on his belt beside you because he's protecting you. Are you talking about in the compound? Yeah, I wouldn't really go out for anything. I had a friend, actually. She was 10 years old, and she had a scooter to get around five dead-ended streets, which is unbelievable. But anyway, so we've pleaded and cried and screamed and begged, and her mom let us out of the gate to ride the scooter. But um, it was always a very thrilling thing because we'd be scared, you know, and we'd be looking over our shoulders. Is anyone following us? Do we have to stop for gas? It, it was just, you know, a paranoia. This mood prevailed, Renata Faraz says, whenever they were outside the gates, getting her to and from school, for example. My mom always picked me up right at the door. So I'd get out of the school gate, into my car, into the gated community. So it's, you know, it's a very safe environment that you build for yourself. So you have your route. And there's also those like things where even, especially my mom, she's very paranoid about this. Never make the same route twice. Try to leave at different times so people don't know where you live or where you're going or where you're coming from. Which is like, you're almost living like a criminal because I know criminals do that. (laughs) But you're adopting their strategies to run away from them, which is something very weird in in my opinion. But we did do that sometimes, you know, take a, a different route home. Behind these precautions lies a fear of violence that is quite well founded. In Sao Paulo State, during the last three months of 2002, the police registered over 4,300 murders, almost 2,800 attempted murders, more than 1,000 rapes, and 227,000-plus thefts. It should also be noted that the police themselves kill hundreds of people a year in Sao Paulo. Project these numbers over a year, and they diagnose something more than what is conventionally called a crime problem. They point to a social polarization so acute that it amounts to an undeclared civil war. A recent news report from the city of Sao Paulo claimed that some wealthy businessmen there can now travel from their homes to their offices in helicopters which land on the roof, thus eliminating public exposure altogether. And when Renata Ferraz returned to Brazil recently and did some research on private security, she discovered that for those who have to stay on the ground, Brazil also has the world's largest fleet of armored cars. You take the car apart and you coat it with um, resistant material to handle like bullets. And the, and the glass also is all replaced with uh, you know, a resistant glass. So basically, it's like you're driving one of those trucks that carry money around. That's what you're driving in basic, simple terms. Like, you're driving a tank, like a combat vehicle. And now it's, uh, it's the trend with the wealthy people in Sao Paulo and Rio to armor their houses. <laughs> so they put plates of steel in between the walls to handle bullets, and they change the glasses also to a a very thick glass. And they're putting survival cells inside their bedrooms, which is basically something that looks like a closet or a bookshelf. And it's made of a 22-millimeter or 44-millimeter thick glass. And uh, it's equipped with an emergency phone line. So if your house gets invaded, 
you put all your family in that small space and they can shoot at it as much as they want and they're not going to break that glass. And you have access to a phone line that if they cut your phone line, that one still works. And you can call the police, you can call your friends, you can let people know something is going on. So it's a lot of money too, you know, it's it's a lot of money. Not only you have to put your kids in private school, not only do you have to pay your own private health care, you have to do all of this to your house, to your car. And imagine the, like growing up as a kid, you know, you, you don't know what you're missing out on. You have no idea because that's all you know. They were such normal things to me that if I tell someone, they're going to make a face at me, like they're going to frown and say, really, are you sure? And yeah, you know, it, it is. It's, it's true. That's the way it is. In 1985, in Brazil, public police officers outnumbered private security agents by a ratio of three to one. Today, the numbers are reversed, and the privates have the three to one advantage. Another country which went through a similar transition in the 1990s was South Africa, and there too private providers now predominate by the same three to one ratio. South Africa shares something else with Brazil as well, the same skewed distribution of wealth. In fact, South Africa is even more polarized. Clifford Shearing is a South African-born criminologist who worked for many years at the University of Toronto's Center of Criminology. Today, he directs a Center for Security and Justice Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra. He says that to understand the current situation in South Africa, you have to look at it in historical context. Apartheid was a policing system based on profiling. So what apartheid did is it segregated people so that poorer people who were also black were not allowed into wealthy areas unless they had a good reason for being there. You needed a pass in order to go there. What this meant was that you could be arrested, you could have uh, police engage with you and remove you from an area, not because you'd done anything wrong, but because you were there without permission which is not that different to the way things work at the moment in commercial malls where you have long lists often of people who are banned from those malls and categories of people who come under surveillance in those malls. So the kind of policing expertise that the South African police needed wasn't the normal expertise of solving crimes in white areas so much as the expertise of being able to segregate and sort people. Now, when apartheid came to an end and these laws were abandoned, this way of segregating crime, of keeping it in black areas, came to an end. With the end of apartheid, the South African police had to turn their attention to the entire country. The composition of the police force also changed dramatically. White residential areas no longer got the same attention. So 
they turned to private security companies. And what particularly interests Clifford Shearing is that these companies now perform functions long considered to be the exclusive province of state police. The whole question of emergency response, which has been for a long time thought of as an essential function of the state police, has in a number of middle-class areas in South Africa been completely taken over by private security. Now, when one goes around South Africa, particularly middle-class areas, as, a, as the visitor, one of the things that immediately strikes you is on every fence, on every wall, on every building, there will be a sign that is of a particular security company. So you'll see these different security companies' logos up all over the place. Now, one's immediately response is, well, South Africa must have become a much more dangerous place in these areas, and it may or may not have become, but that isn't what these private security company logos mean. In the past, there was effectively an invisible logo on each wall which said the South African police because they were the entity that responded to everyone. Now that you have this function of response being distributed between a number of entities, they're announcing which is the entity which is involved in this. So the mere fact that you have all these signs up doesn't mean that, in fact, it's any more dangerous. What it is displaying is a change of service provider. Now, not only are private security companies providing emergency response, but collections of residents are now paying for security companies to provide patrol functions. So you have another, which was often regarded as a core state police function, being taken over or being undertaken, rather, by other entities. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight, we're presenting the second program in a 10-hour series by David Cayley called In Search of Security. South Africa, Brazil, and Russia could hardly be more different societies yet they have in common a dramatic expansion in private security during the last 10 to 15 years. The same privatizing trend has also affected the military. Private military companies, by one scholar's estimate, are now a $100 billion a year business worldwide. These companies do not as yet provide troops, though some, as you will hear, would like to, but rather are involved in things like training, protection, military policing, and technical support. In Colombia, private companies train and advise Colombian security forces, poison coca fields by aerial spraying, and guard pipelines. Above the Balkans, a private company performs aerial surveillance for American intelligence purposes. In Iraq, the new army and the new police force are both being trained by private companies. Deborah Avant is a professor of political science at George Washington University who has been studying this development for a number of years 
and has a book forthcoming on the subject. She says that in the U.S., two movements have driven privatization. The first is the vogue for contracting out government services, which goes back to the 1980s. The second was the end of the Cold War. With the end of the Cold War, a lot of Western states promised a peace dividend and the downsizing of their forces. And indeed, they did downsize their forces in the early 90s, all the way throughout the 90s, in fact. And yet this downsizing occurred at the same time that a number of small-scale contingencies, as they're now called in the U.S., erupted, requiring troops to actually be deployed at a much faster pace than they had been deployed during the um, 70s and 80s. And so you had this paradox of the forced downsizing at the same time that all kinds of people were being shipped off to Somalia and Haiti and the Balkans, and that created some stresses on the U.S. force. And the fact that these private companies were there and that they operated on a contract basis, which means they had huge databases full of men that they could, and sometimes women, mostly men, um, that they could pull together for individual contracts, made them very flexible to respond to whatever kinds of needs um, the U.S. government had. And um, in fact, one of the you know big areas of growth in contracts with the U.S. government has been in foreign military advice and training. Instead of, instead of using special operations force, they could use retired forces that were employed by these companies. The other big area of growth was in international civilian police. The United States doesn't have an infrastructure for sending international civilian police abroad. And so private companies provided that infrastructure. And um, virtually every international civilian police officer that the U.S. sent abroad during the 90s was a private employee. Downsizing cut the military forces of the great powers by some five to six million people during the 1990s, according to Christopher Spearin. He teaches strategic studies at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto, and he says that one of the biggest impacts of this decrease was on the arms market. With the end of the Cold War, you have not only downsizing of armed forces, which puts a lot of weaponry onto the marketplace, but because of the end of the Cold War, you see that arms dealers themselves or arms producers, it becomes very much of a, a cutthroat marketplace in the sense that they are willing to sell their arms to more types of actors or more types of clients and at lower costs. In the context of Africa, the average or the going price for an AK-47, the standard Soviet-era assault rifle, is between 7 and 15 US dollars. You can see how these sorts of weapons can spread out and make rebel movements quite a formidable force. So in that sense, you have state weakness, but also strength in the rebel movements that are countering the governments of, uh, of weak states. This buyer's market in arms heightened the intensity of a number of long-running civil conflicts, in Africa in particular. Irregular armies fought without clear rules of engagement, which made things dangerous for the humanitarian NGOs who tried to provide food, medicines, and shelter. And as a result, Christopher Spearin says, protecting humanitarians became another task of private military firms. Although many NGO personnel would probably not wish to recognize this, the rise of the importance of private security or private military companies and, uh, and the rise of NGOs are very much of the same feather. 
in the sense that they are both representative of downsizing and outsourcing and relying upon private actors, whether or not it be for the delivery of humanitarian assistance or the delivery of some type of security expertise or security product. And uh, during the course of the 1990s, you see a certain anemia towards many developed world countries providing troops for peacekeeping operations and whatnot. And that left humanitarians, humanitarian NGOs, uh, very much in the lurch because they no longer had the necessary protection or security in order to carry out their operations. And you see that in terms of the number of times NGO personnel faced threats not only to their operations, but also to their lives. And also, in many cases, there were kidnappings and even deaths. And so these firms were thought to provide the protection to allow NGO personnel or other humanitarians to go out and carry out their business. NGOs, Christopher Spearin says, have been somewhat secretive about this dependence on private military contractors because they fear it will not play well with donors who might think of these companies as mercenaries. But this is just one of the many uses such companies now have. Another, particularly in the case of the United States, is to further the government's policy without the liabilities that would be involved in committing American military personnel. If a contractor passes away or is killed in the, in, the, in the course of an operation, it probably doesn't even merit a newspaper headline. Whereas if an American service man or woman dies in the course of operation, the flag-draped coffin is brought back to Dover Air Force Base and there's usually some media attention or whatnot. So you see it in the issue of casualties. They're able to do a lot more with private contractors in the sense that if you look, uh, let's say, in the context of the Middle East, the United States has for a long time relied upon one firm called um, Vanell Corporation, which uh, has had a contract to train and advise the Saudi Arabian National Guard, the main institution that guards the Saudi royal family. And uh, Vanell uh, suffered both uh, bomb attacks in the mid-1990s and also uh, in 2003, and yet the contract still exists, the personnel still there, the work goes on. If you look in the context of the United States and uh, Somalia in the early 1990s, you see the death of 18 service personnel pretty much brought an end to that contract. So in a certain sense, you can get to perhaps more bang for your buck by relying on contractors because you can ensure that the, uh, the project or the program or the policy is going to keep on going without uh, the fear of negative publicity. The role of the Vanell Corporation in the Middle East is a good example of the useful ambiguity involved in private contracting. On the one hand, Vanell is an American company. It's staffed for the most part by ex-military, and its foreign contracts must be licensed by the United States government. On the other hand, it's a free, private agent whose actions the United States can, at least partially, disown. Deborah Avant has explored this ambiguity in the case of a large private military company called MPRI, which in 1994 contracted to train Croatia's military forces. Yugoslavia had only recently broken apart, and at least a third of the area claimed as national territory by Croatian President Franjo Tuđman was in dispute. The Krahina, which Deborah Avant refers to, was one such area. When MPRI went to work for President Tujman um, and the Croatian government, 
it was really a coup for Croatia. They touted it as being an alliance with the United States. Of course, the U.S. government wasn't involved, um, but they did license the contract. And Croatia, um, the Croatian government, did sell it as an alliance with the United States. Um, what it did, uh, the contract effectively solidified Tuđman's power against an increasingly virulent opposition in Croatia, and also convinced the Serbs that they should not fight in the Krahina. And in fact, the Croatians had an easier time getting them out of the Krahina than everyone, anyone had expected. And many po- people believe that that was because the Serbs sort of saw the MPRI contract as evidence of U.S. support for Croatia. So in a sense, what this did for the U.S. government was provide them with a proxy by which they could sort of conduct foreign policy without getting their hands dirty. This is a policy, if policy it was, that raises a lot of questions. One which has been of special interest to Deborah Avant is the question of control. When private companies become instruments of American policy, she asks, does the policy become in some measure a hostage to the interests of these companies? She begins her answer by distinguishing the different meanings of control. One of the many complexities of looking at this issue is the complexity of trying to figure out what control means. When we want to control military forces, one of the things we want to do is make sure they're effective, that they can do what you want them to do, and I call that functional control. Another is to make sure that they bow to the set of power that is in place, and I call that political control. And the other thing is to make sure that they abide by certain kind of social values that that sort of undergird a certain political order, um, and I call that social control. In the cases that I've examined, and I've examined nine different relationships and probably close to 100 different contracts, in virtually every instance, who gets to decide about the use of force or political control changes when you contract as opposed to using state forces. And so my thesis, if you will, is that the privatization of security sometimes improves functional control and sometimes even improves social control, although both can go in both directions. But it always redistributes power over the control of force. And that's the thing that we should probably pay the closest attention to. Can you give an example of which which you would regard as a strong case of redistribution of political control? Well, I think, paradoxically enough, some of the strongest evidence comes from the U.S. government, simply because you would assume that the U.S. government is so strong that it would be obviously able to control contractors. But in MPRI's contracts in the Balkans, both with the Bosnian military and with the Croatian military, well, let's say the Bosnian military, essentially when that contract was written, it was written between the Bosnian military and MPRI. Contracts that are written directly between a company and a foreign government do not have to be approved by Congress, or Congress does not even have to be notified of them unless they're over $50 million. But more than that, the contract is a particular kind of instrument. It's a contract. It operates for a certain amount of time. It specifies jobs. And in the Balkans, U.S. policy was often much more fluid than the contracts. 
And U.S. policymakers in the Pentagon, in the Balkan Task Force, in the State Department wanted to respond quickly and flexibly to events on the ground in order to solidify the formation of a government in Bosnia. The fact that MPRI had a contract for a specific amount of time made fluid adjustments more difficult. And it also sometimes led the Bosnian government to have interests that aligned with MPRI that were legitimated and and written down in the contract that frustrated efforts uh, by the U.S. government to move money, say, away from training military forces into training police forces or change the direction of um, military training. And so people who work on a day-to-day basis on the Balkans at the Pentagon have called contracts a rigid tool for a fluid environment. And so essentially, if you're thinking about what kind of redistribution of power that entailed, it meant that power over U.S. foreign policy was given to a certain extent to the Bosnian government, was given to a certain extent to a private company that had commercial interests in the continuation of that contract, was essentially removed from congressional oversight, and, you know, to the extent that control was exercised, it was exercised by the executive. And so, you know, in that sense, the U.S. has lost functional control and redistributed power, as I suggested before, over the control of force. Deborah Avant calls the redistribution of power over the control of force has now become a matter of urgent and growing concern. During the Gulf War of the early 1990s, private contractors comprised about 1% of the total American military operation. During the recent invasion of Iraq, they comprised 10%. Peter Singer is a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington and the author of a new book called Corporate Warriors, The Rise of the Privatized Military Industry. He was interviewed for the CBC radio program, Dispatches. Not only in the lead-up to the war, but during the war itself, there was an incredibly extensive private military presence. The rough ratio was about one private contractor for every 10 coalition soldiers. And not only it's it, the numbers matter, but more importantly, the types of jobs that they were doing. They were not only handling the logistics, but also providing critical maintenance services on weapon systems, things like the B-2 stealth bomber, some air defense systems, the stealth fighter, Apache helicopter. In those cases, the task was basically handed over to private companies. Now we're moving into some of the more sophisticated next-generation weapon systems where even the operation of them is being handed over. For example, the Global Hawk is not only made by a private company, it's not only maintained by a private company, it's even flown by a private company. Some of the air defense networks are similarly operated in part by private companies. And then we take it, that was extensive enough, let's take it to the next level and go, wow, what's happening within the occupation period? 
Well, it's even greater. And it's because of this disconnect between supply and demand. Basically, you have U.S. forces stretched thin on the ground. You had a very bad planning effort that didn't anticipate a lot of these problems. And so a lot of the new tasks are basically being handed over to private companies. For example, the post-Saddam army, the post-Saddam paramilitary, the post-Saddam infrastructure security service, and the post-Saddam police are all going to be trained and formed and led not by U.S. military officers, but by private companies. And basically, the U.S. military would not be effective. In many cases, it would simply not be able to operate without the presence of these private personnel there. And that's a description of the U.S. military, but it's the trend that we're seeing all across the Western militaries, with the Australian military, with the Canadian, with the Brits, etc. It's a trend that's in place. That's why we have to catch up to it. Private companies working in tandem with a professional army have become a way of executing a policy on which American public opinion might quickly sour if a lot of citizen soldiers were involved. The same point applies to UN peacekeeping operations. As the number of situations potentially requiring peacekeepers has increased, the number of troops developed countries are willing to commit has declined. The result has been that UN peacekeeping forces are now largely drawn from poorer countries for whom UN service is a paying proposition. But these troops have not always been well-trained, well-led, or well-controlled. Into this vacuum has stepped a consortium of private military companies called the International Peace Operations Association. We will do it, the association has told the UN, and we will do it under whatever conditions you see fit to impose. Doug Brooks of the International Peace Operations Association was also interviewed by CBC Radio's Dispatches. When you're looking at the peacekeeping industry, it's a huge industry. The UN is spending a billion dollars probably this year in, in the Congo alone. For a private company, which you know most of these companies are probably under four or five million dollars in, in turnover every year, that's a huge market. So, you know, they're willing to jump through any hoop we want to design, you know, in terms of transparency, accountability, making sure that uh, they follow all the regulations that we'd like them to follow. Now, it'd be lovely if we had more accountability and, and laws on the books about this sort of thing, but we don't, you know, until we get to that point, we can, we can control them contractually. We can say, okay, if any of your people, for example, get involved in conflict diamonds, any of your employees, we will fine you. We will take the money out of your contract, and the companies will sign up to that. Uh, the reason is that they, they're confident of the people they hire. They're confident that they can do this sort of thing. And I think we have to keep in mind that we're comparing that we need to compare them to what we have now, which is a complete lack of accountability, a complete lack of transparency in UN peacekeeping operations. Things go on all the time. You don't hear about it much because we need those peacekeeping operations. The last thing we want them to do is pull out. But it's going on. I mean, the, there's all sorts of uh, humanitarian issues. The Congolese have been screaming about the, uh, what's going on with the UN operation there. We're talking about human rights violations. We're talking about sex crimes. We're talking about running brothels with children. This has been going on for a long time, and this has been, it's, the Congolese know about it, but it doesn't get out much to the regular press. According to Doug Brooks, the current UN force in the eastern Congo is both corrupt and ineffective. Indeed, he has described the situation in that country as a slow genocide, a term which the estimated three million dead so far seems to bear out. 
Brooks believes that private companies operating within clear public mandates could do much better. His association has laid out its plan for private peacekeeping in the Congo in what it calls a concept paper. In our concept paper for Congo, for example, we promise greater accountability and transparency than any UN operation ever. And that's not saying too much. When a national force goes in and does a peacekeeping operation in another country, you don't get much transparency. You don't get much control of the national force. Oftentimes when they're ordered to do something, the first thing they'll do is call their capital and find out if it's okay to do what the UN is requesting them to do, or I should say ordering them to do. It's a problem. It makes UN operations very, very difficult to move forward with. Now, let me be clear about this. We support the UN. We support the use of international mandates from the UN, from a regional organization like ECOWAS. You need that sort of legitimacy, that sort of legality before you're going to get uh, ethical companies working in these sorts of things. Once you have that legitimate mandate, then there's nothing wrong with hiring a private company that can do a job better. If you don't, if you go on with westernless peacekeeping, you're talking about essentially killing a lot of people because of ineffective peace operations. What Doug Brooks calls westernless peacekeeping is peacekeeping without western troops, a sensitive point, as you can imagine. But Doug Brooks' proposal seems doomed in any case by the UN's inability to get to grips with the issues posed by private military companies. On the one hand, UN agencies like UNICEF and the High Commission for Refugees employ private companies in their operations. On the other, there is a faction that regards these companies as no different from the mercenaries and soldiers of fortune that are condemned and outlawed by a UN convention. This ambivalence is symptomatic of a wider problem. Mercenaries are familiar. Private military firms are something new particularly private military firms with codes of ethics and a willingness to do the dirty work of humanitarian intervention for pay when no one else will do it for love. One of the gray areas, says Deborah Avant, is law. These companies do not have a clear status in international law or in domestic law. And, um, you know, when companies misbehave when they're executing contracts or when individuals employed by companies misbehave, it's unclear who gets to punish them, and that's a huge issue. The other thing is if in the execution of contracts in a conflict situation, if members of these companies are captured, what will be their legal status? Um, are they combatants and considered prisoners of war? Are they non-combatants that are essentially executing violence and therefore considered war criminals and potentially executable, uh, that's something that is not clear at all. As well as these legal issues, there is a question of how and by whom private military companies will be regulated. And adequate regulations must be written soon, Peter Singer says, because events are rapidly outrunning policy and may soon force the UN's hand. That's really my fear, is that we're going to be forced into a decision by our failure to deal with the issues. And um, essentially what happens is every time there is a humanitarian disaster somewhere, you have this scramble within the international community, particularly within the UN, 
of going about with tin cup in hand and saying, is anybody interested in deploying into this region and saving civilian lives? And often at the start of it, very few states and often none of the parties within the region are willing to go in there. And then you have the offer from a private company or many private companies saying, we'd be willing to go in there. And so it presents the UN with this difficult decision, either watch the catastrophe continue or hand it over to a private company that they're not equipped to um, handle. That situation happened in the Congo, it happened in Burundi, and it happened in Liberia. Fortunately, in each of those three cases, eventually you got sort of the minimal amount of state willingness to go in where parties were either embarrassed into doing something or suddenly changed their mind to do something. The problem is this is not a way that you go about policymaking, hoping that someone else is going to step to the fore. And at some point, someone's not going to, and we're going to have to turn it over to private companies without any structures in place. The case for devising regulations and clarifying laws may be urgent, but unwillingness to look private military companies in the eye still seems to hold back change. A great part of the difficulty is that these companies don't quite fit the mental map that was drawn when national states alone exerted force internationally. The state is still supreme in many ways, but its power is undeniably being redistributed, as tonight's program has argued. What this means for the governance of security will be my subject in the next program of this series. Ideas tonight, you've listened to part two of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10 hour series continues tomorrow night. This series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Thanks also to Dispatches for the interviews with Peter Singer and Doug Brooks. Production tonight, Dave Field, Richard Handler, and Liz Nage. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs for all 10 programs cost $75. Please write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news follows, then the arts today and between the covers. Music